So we've been in this series called Stories of the Cross, and it's kind of got me wondering about the stories that we, you know, enjoy on a day-to-day basis. It's got me wondering as we look at the various characters who are in and around Jesus as he journeys to the cross, it makes me wonder who, who your favorite character is in whatever, your favorite novel or television show or movie or whatever. If you were to think back to the favorite characters you've had over your lifetime, who, who stands out? And, and maybe the more relevant or important question is, why are those characters important to you? What is it that you connected with? about them. You know, I think back to when I was a lot younger and I tended in the shows that I watched, I tended to cheer for the for heroes, like true heroes. Kind of that in my mind the paradigm is Superman, right? The the clean-cut, clean-shaven, big, tall, strapping, kind, gentle, like the guy who's always doing the right thing. It's just like He is sort of the epitome of what it means to be a a fictional hero. But if I look over the course of my life and over the course of sort of entertainment in the last number of decades, it seems like there has been a move away from the hero towards more of an anti-hero. The anti-hero is a a literary term that talks about a, a central character in a narrative who lacks the traditional qualities of a hero, right? We're drawn now to people like Han Solo. Um, One of the shows that Chris and I are watching uh, or have watched uh, is the show Homeland. And the main character, Claire Danes, um, is a CIA agent who struggles with mental illness and she's erratic and unpredictable and she doesn't always do what she's supposed to do in a bad way. Like she's an anti-hero of the, one of the biggest shows of all time, Breaking Bad. You had an entire continent cheering for a murderous drug dealer. He was exactly not the kind of person you want to be when you grow up and yet somehow we're drawn to characters like that. There was an article in Psychology Today a little while ago that said one of the reasons why we're drawn to anti-heroes is that their moral complexity appeals to us. We see ourselves in them because we're fallen, we're broken, we're flawed, we're battling our demons. We don't make the right decision all the time. We're not always good and there's something reassuring about finding a hero who's broken like us. This morning, we're going to look at the story of an anti-hero who was around Jesus on his way to the cross. Because so far in this series, we've been looking at Jesus, the hero of the story. And we've been looking about how Jesus is the one who mediates a relationship between humanity and God. That he invites us into a life of harmony with God and harmony with ourselves and harmony with each other, with the world. And and even with creation, excuse me, and he does it through his death on the cross. 
And so in the Lord's Supper, which we've been celebrating throughout this series, we celebrate what Jesus has done, bringing forgiveness and transformation and healing and restoration through his death on the cross. We celebrate what he is doing as he binds us together in relationship with each other and makes us into a kind of community that experiences and radiates and channels the love of God into the world. We celebrate what he is going to do when he returns and the kingdom of God comes fully and finally and freely forever when when as we live in the presence of God in a world where all things have been made new and last week we saw that Jesus motivation always only ever in choosing the cross his motivation is love that he chose the cross he chose to die because God so loved the world loved you and loved me But this morning, we're going to turn our attention to one of the people, and now for the following weeks, the people who are around Jesus. And we're going to look this morning at the story of the character, one of Jesus' disciples, the story of Peter. Now, I mentioned Peter a little bit last week, mentioned uh, something of his story, but we're going to look intensely at a story today, which begins in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, which starts with Jesus, who says, it says, then Jesus told them, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Peter's story begins with this moment of a profound and confident declaration of his devotion to Jesus. Jesus and his disciples have just finished eating the Passover, the last supper together. They're, they've left Jerusalem. They're walking west of the city towards the Mount of Olives. And I imagine the disciples are still talking about how around the dinner table, Jesus had said that Judas was going to betray him. And they're still chattering about this. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, say what you want about Judas. But before this night is over, Y'all will have abandoned me. He actually, he chooses an interesting word. He says, you will fall away. He doesn't say run away, which is what most of the disciples do. He doesn't talk about their physical behavior. He says, you will fall away. It's a discipleship word. He said, you are going to fail in your following of me. He even quotes a scripture, a prophecy from Zechariah saying, this is what God has said would happen. And exactly that moment, Peter jumps in and he says, nope, not to me. I can understand, Jesus, if, you know, all of these other knuckleheads abandon you, that would make sense to me. But you have to understand, Jesus, I'm not like them. Even if all of them fall away, I never would. Uh, Peter looks Jesus in the eye and says, the word all doesn't apply to me. And Jesus says, I'll tell you, Peter, You are right. You're not like the others because before the end of this night, you're going to have done something more heinous than all of them. You're going to have denied three times that you even know who I am. Peter says, no, not me. Not going to happen. It's you and me to the death, buddy. And Jesus kind of lets it drop. But I 
I want you to imagine the arrogance and the bravado that it takes in Peter to make an assertion like that. Peter elevates himself among all of his fellow disciples. He says, listen, they all might. I I could totally see that, but not me. I never would because my faith is of a different kind than theirs. He elevates himself above the scriptures. Jesus quotes Zechariah and Peter essentially says, I don't care what Zechariah says. That doesn't apply to me. Peter elevates himself above Jesus. Right, Jesus, they, they, the two of them interact two times. They each speak two times. Jesus always goes first and Peter always goes second. And Jesus both times inter, uh, initiates a conversation to say, uh, just a heads up, you're all going to you know, fall away. You're all going to fail and disappoint me and abandon me tonight. And each time, Peter almost, he almost says, Peter interrupts Jesus. He quotes Jesus back to Jesus just to prove or to show Jesus where Jesus is wrong. You ever had a conversation with somebody who, whose great delight in the conversation was explaining to you about how wrong you are? Just think back to the last time we had a conversation. It should come quickly. Um, <laughs> but but Peter, Peter insists on showing Jesus how wrong he is. Um, Peter is absolutely convinced that there's nothing that... Jesus speaks with authority as his teacher and master and Lord. Jesus quotes scripture. Jesus uses his catchphrase, truly I tell you, which is kind of Jesus' way of underlining. Listen, if you're going to think anything is true, you need to get this next sentence. This is matter. He used the word all, none of it, doesn't matter. Peter is absolutely convinced that his faith is solid and deep. And at first, to be honest, it seems like Peter's as good as his word. In verse 57, it says, this is after Jesus had been arrested. It said, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teacher of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Peter sticks with Jesus. All the other disciples, there in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus gets arrested. Everyone else runs for their lives. And Peter alone sticks with Jesus. In fact, he follows the arresting party all the way back to the high priest's house, lets himself into the courtyard where everybody has been gathered outside. The trial is going to go on inside. And Peter pulls up a chair and sits down with the guard and tries to blend in because he wants to see where all of this is going to go. He takes his spot. He follows Jesus. It, It literally says that Peter followed him. I think Matthew's using that word intentionally. Peter was still following Jesus, but at a distance. He was putting some space in between. Jesus was inside. Peter was outside. Peter was trying to blend in with the crowd. And the blending uh, didn't last that long. Verse 69 says, now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Uh, I think Matthew, um, this scene is happening at exactly the same time as Jesus is being put on trial by the high priest just on the other side of that wall. And Matthew is setting up this contrast. Jesus is inside on a formal trial 
He's being grilled by the high priest, which is the single most powerful person in all of Israel. Peter's outside, not on trial, being questioned by uh, a lowly servant. In fact, the Greek word um, even indicates in the word that this is a servant that is to be disregarded, the lowest of the low. Jesus on the inside is being confronted by the high priest who is a man who had all the authority in ancient culture. Peter is being asked a question by a servant who is a little girl. On the inside, uh, Jesus is surrounded, the high priest, whatever, and they're all leaning in and they're hurling false accusations at him and, and they're kind of assaulting him, trying to make these charges stick. And Jesus stands firm. Peter on the outside is asked a single question. And you have no idea from the text, there may not have been any malice to the question. There may not have been any motivation at all. Hey, just kind of, oh, weren't you with him? On the inside, Jesus is surrounded by a mob. The chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, the temple guard, the mob that arrests him, all pressing in around him. Outside, it says Peter was uh, addressed by a servant girl. Matthew actually uses the word one. So wait, just one. There was Jesus on the inside is on trial, standing strong, confessing the truth in the face of false accusations from the most powerful people in the nation. And just on the other side of the wall, the big, strong, tough fisherman is crumbling under the pressure of a tiny little servant girl who's asking him one question. In effect, Peter's getting beaten up by a little girl. And he, he denies it. She said, weren't you with... Jesus of Galilee, and he tugs his collar, and he laughs nervously, and he says to everyone, I don't know what she's talking about. And he decides that maybe it's time to move. In verse 7 and 1, he says, then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied it again with an oath. I don't, I don't know the man. <laughs> Peter's decides he needs to move away from where he was sitting. He slides back all the way to the exit and he's kind of standing by the exit door trying to blend in with the wall and just disappear. And while he's standing there, another little servant girl notices Jesus and this, or Peter. Yet this time she doesn't talk to Peter. She talks to everybody else. She says, hey, everybody, don't you think he was with Jesus? And Peter's consents. This is becoming a little more public. This is getting a little bit out of his control. And he begins to panic on the inside. And he responds the same way that he did to the other girl. He says, listen, I, I don't know the man. The man. That's who Jesus is now to Peter. His master, servant, rabbi, or master, you know, rabbi, teacher. The one who called him out of obscurity, gave him a life with God, his best friend for three years. Um, Peter was the first person in the Gospel of Matthew to correctly identify who Jesus really is. He looks at Jesus, he says, I know exactly who you are. You are the Christ sent from God. There's nobody who knows Jesus better than Peter. And yet now, Peter in this panic says, I don't know the man. He's trying to 
put distance between himself. He, he literally, well, and then he follows it up with an oath, which by the way, Jesus says his disciples should never swear an oath to certify their truthfulness. Peter swears an oath. And, and literally Peter's response is, I swear to God, I don't know this guy. And then begins to feel like he's in trouble. Verse 73, it says, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, no, no, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. This time it's not a little girl, it's a group of men who are now starting to lean in and put some pressure on Peter and say, no, 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 your accent gives you away. You're from Galilee. See, the people uh, around the high priest's house, people who lived in Jerusalem, that was the province of Judea, and they had a very different accent than people like Peter and Jesus who came from Galilee in the north. The rabbis used to say that the Judeans would speak with precision and exactness in their enunciation and, and uh, articulation, where the Galileans, their accent was so thick, people couldn't understand what they said. One, one rabbi tells a joke about how this Galilean is wandering through the market place in Judea and he's looking for Amar uh, you know Hebrew word Amar and because of his accent nobody could tell whether he wants wool wine a donkey or a sheep and they're all laughing at him because they can't understand a word he says because of his accent they the Judeans used to make fun of the Galileans the way you know people make fun of a Newfie accent or people make fun of a southern drawl like you're just it's kind of this hick accent that gives you away is the way they thought about it. And so now there's this mob of men standing around Peter saying, now, wait a minute, you're definitely a Galilean at the high priest's house in the middle of the night during the trial of Jesus, the Galilean. Hmm. You know what, fella? I'm starting to add one plus one plus one plus one. Any guesses what answer I'm coming up with? I think you're one of them. And Peter loses it. It says that he answered before. He swore an oath. He said, I swear to God, I don't know this guy. But it says that even before that, he says he called down curses. Now, it doesn't say who he was calling down curses on. But Peter could have been cursing the crowd, telling them, you know, where they could put it. Peter could have been cursing himself, saying, you know, may God, you know, send me to hell if I'm lying about this. But in all likelihood, Matthew wants us to understand that Peter was cursing Jesus, the way later Roman governors would cause Christians or try to force Christians to denounce Jesus with curses and renounce their faith. If you'll allow me, Peter was saying, to hell with him. I swear to God, I don't know this guy. And the second he says it, this rooster calls. And Peter's crushed. And in this poignant scene, Peter is followed at a distance. He sat outside. He moved to the door. In this poignant final scene, Peter goes outside into the darkness and he weeps. And that's the story of Peter. The story of the anti-hero. The central character in the story who lacks heroic qualities, who's flawed and battling his own demons 
and not making the right decision all the time. And I love Peter in the story because Peter, like psychology today says, Peter reminds me of me. Peter reminds me that that's who I am. That actually, no matter how confident or certain or deep or strong we think our faith is, the best among us is weak and fragile um, and frail in our faith at best. And in fact, the stronger we proclaim ourselves to be, the more depth and strength we believe our faith to have, the more symptomatic it is that our faith, our faith is weak and failing, especially if our sense of strength in our faith comes from the way that we compare ourselves to other people who we're convinced have an inferior and weaker faith than us. Oh, I'm not like them. We're all Peter. Maybe we don't all take the opportunity to curse Jesus and swear that we've never known him. But we all fall away. We all do. Every time we choose something other than what Jesus would choose for us, we fall away. Just a little bit. The Anglicans have this beautiful prayer of confession that helps me anyway when I use it reflect on all of the ways that I can choose to fall away. It says we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and in word, and in deed. By the things that we have done and the things that we have left undone. We have not loved you, God, with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Every unloving thought, every unloving word, every unloving deed that we've committed, every loving deed we've left uncommitted, every time we've loved something more than we love God, every time we've loved ourselves more than we love somebody else, we are unchoosing Jesus just a little bit. We're denying that we've ever even known the guy. And what it reminds me of is that the fundamental posture of a life of faith is the posture of humility. That's where faith begins, with humility. Peter's story begins with him saying, my faith isn't like everybody else's. My faith is superior to the rest. Scriptures don't apply to me because I'm strong enough. And you know what the Bible says? Pride comes before the fall. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul, St. Paul writes this. He said, these things happen to people like that as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You are never closer to experiencing a failure of faith than when you think your faith is doing well. One of the first things, the first thing Jesus teaches in the entire gospel of Matthew is this. God blesses those who know in their spirit how bankrupt they are and just how much they need God. 
That is the posture of faith. He says, God blesses those who are poor in spirit for they will see the kingdom of God. It's those people who know how bankrupt they are who will live a life where they experience harmony with God and harmony with themselves and harmony with each other in the world and with creation itself. Those are the people who get to experience the life that Jesus has for us. Peter reminds me that the fundamental posture of faith is humility. He reminds me that the fundamental response of faith is honesty. At the end of the story in verse 75, uh, Peter's just denied Jesus the third time. The rooster crows. It says, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. He went outside alone in the dark and wept bitterly. He had gotten a glimpse of his own soul. He had gotten a glimpse of his own weakness, his own fragility, his own fallenness, his own failure. He got a glimpse of who he really is, the quality of faith he actually had. He got a glimpse in that moment of his relationship with Jesus, the unconditional love of Jesus that will go to the cross and die for him and the conditional love of Peter that says, you know, Jesus, I'll follow you so long as it doesn't get too inconvenient or too uncomfortable. And he weeps. It breaks him. The word weep actually in in Greek um, represents the volume of the sobs. He's inconsolable. The word bitterly talks about an agony of the soul. And you know what it is? As painful as it is, it's fundamentally a response of honesty. A moment of self-reflection where Peter sees the truth about who he really is and he owns it. He claims it. He doesn't, try to, he doesn't try to divert attention or turn away or make excuses or blame someone else. He sees the truth about who he is and he owns it. And it breaks him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the apostle Paul writes this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now, Peter doesn't dwell there in a like I'm worthless I'm terrible God should want to have nothing to do with me that's shame and we'll talk about that next week what Peter experiences is godly sorrow a brokenness a broken heartedness over the way in which he has been something other than what he and Jesus want him to be and he's broken over that And it brings repentance, a mental, emotional, spiritual change of mind that says, I don't want to be that anymore. And repentance brings salvation, the forgiveness and transformation and healing and restoration that comes from somebody who throws themselves at Jesus' feet and says, please forgive me for who I've been. And when you've experienced the godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation, you can get up and walk away with no regrets. Not that it's fine that people got hurt and you made destructive decisions and so on. Of course, that's not okay. But you are able to get up and move on into whatever God has for you next. Because the truth about Peter's story is that in as much as it reminds me of the fragility of my own faith, it also reminds me of the firmness of Jesus' grace. See, this actually isn't the end of Peter's story. It's the last time he's mentioned by name in the Gospels, but this is not the end of his story. In fact, way back when Jesus is predicting that Peter will fall, he says in verse 32, after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Jesus says, listen, you're all going to deny me in a 
abandon me, run away, whatever. Listen, when this all has been said and done, let's meet in Galilee and let's start again. And it says in Matthew 28 that Jesus went to Galilee and met with the 11 disciples minus Judas, which means that Peter denied Jesus three times, which by the way, the first time is an accident. The second time is a weakness. The third time is willfulness. Peter willfully denies ever knowing Jesus and Jesus forgives him and includes him in his inner circle. Jesus never gives up on Peter. And Matthew doesn't even have to explain that to his readers because they already know Peter. They don't know Peter as the guy who denied Jesus and, you know, walked away from him. They know Peter as one of the most important leaders in the Jesus movement in the early decades after Jesus' death. They know Peter as the one who wrote several books of the scriptures now called the New Testament. They know Peter as one of the most important leaders in the two most important churches in early Christianity, in the church in Jerusalem and in the church in Rome. They know Peter as the one who would one day die on a cross because of his followership, because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter would insist that he die on the cross upside down because he didn't even deserve to die in the same posture as his Savior, Jesus Christ. And what that reminds me of is that God does not need me to be perfect. I am a, fail a failure. My weak faith is weak and faltering and fragile. And I fall away and I drift away and I make unloving choices all the time. And God doesn't need me to be perfect. And I don't need to put the stress on myself to be perfect. To, yes, to strive and to grow. God doesn't want perfection. He wants direction. He wants our lives to be moving towards the life and love of Jesus instead of moving away from it. And he wants our lives to be moving towards the life and love of Jesus through a humble posture and an honest acknowledgement of our sin where we can experience forgiveness, transformation, healing, and restoration and step into one more time the person that Jesus has called us to be. It's a reminder that God has not and God is not and God will never give up on me if I continue to respond to him in humility and the honesty of sorrow and repentance and faith. It reminds me that God doesn't need superheroes or superhumans or super Christians. That God wants ordinary people whose faith is weak and fragile and faltering and failing, but who are humble and honest and repentant and moving forward with Jesus. That's what God wants from us. Because God is a God of second chances. In Isaiah 43, it says this, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. God says, you know who I am? I'm the God who cleans up and cleans out and wipes clean all of your past record of sin. I don't even bother to remember the stuff that you've done, that you've been broken over, repentant of, and we've moved on with no regrets. I don't even remember that stuff. Krista will say to me sometimes, I don't know how you can know so much of the Bible, preach a whole sermon without notes, but you can't remember to get the girls dressed for volleyball, right? Like this week, I forgot the girls were going to volleyball. I sent them out in princess dresses. Krista had to take them to the secondhand store to buy volleyball outfits and they played volleyball in their sparkly sweaters because I, I forgot. And I've said to Krista before, and it's just true of everybody, your brain hangs on to the things that feel like they matter in the moment. 
And it just lets go of everything else. And this is what God says to you. I can't think of a single reason why I would hang on to a memory of you falling away from me. Once we've dealt with it, once you've been humble about it and honest about it and you've repented and we've dealt with it and we're moving on. I can't think of a single reason to remember because God is a God of second chances. He is the God of the reset button. God is the God of the reboot. He is the God of the control alt delete. He is the restore to factory defaults. He is the hard reset button. God does not hang on to your junk. You're the only one hanging on to that. God does not remember every unloving thought and unloving word and unloving deed, every act of love that went undone. God does not remember all the times you love somebody else or something else more than you love him. He doesn't remember all the times that you loved yourself more than somebody else. If in humility and honesty, you've come in sorrow and repentance and dealt with it with God, it is gone because God is the God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and 10th chances and millionth chances. And it never, ever, ever, ends just look at Peter and so I don't know where you're coming from this morning I don't know what your week has been like I don't know where you've been personally or where you've been in your relationship with Jesus and I'm here to tell you you come to God this morning in humility and honesty in an attitude of repentance and it won't matter godly sorrow that leads to repentance that brings forgiveness, transformation, healing, and restoration. And you know what's left? The blank sheet, the clean canvas, the blank slate, the fresh start, the wide open future filled with possibilities where God says, come walk with me and let's see what we become together. Let's step into those second chances this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess and I suspect there are others, that I have sinned against you in thought and word and deed. By the things that I've done and by the things I've left undone. I've not loved you with my whole heart. And I've not loved others as much as myself. And you have forgiven all of it, blotted it out, cleaned it up, cleaned it out, wiped the hard drive clean, put it in the past, put it away in the closet, turned me towards our future together and said, walk with me towards what you will become. God, may every person in this room have the courage and the faith to live humbly and honestly and to be willing to forget their past like you have forgotten and to step into the future that you have for them in Jesus Christ. Would you give us the courage to live into the kinds of second chances you gave to Peter? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.